Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women through their stories. This episode has been kindly sponsored for Sparkle Kids, an organisation in Hermanus with which Dr Magona is involved, supporting young people to get from a place of disadvantage to self-support. Through her writing, Dr Cindy Wimagona has opened the eyes and minds of many South Africans. Her experience and wisdom has enabled her to throw light on the layered past, and her observation and care has given her insight into the often confusing present. Well, it's all of this which feeds into her vision for a better, stronger, healthier, happier future society, and which is reflected in her latest book, When the Village Sleeps, it's published by Picador. But Cindy Way has written many books, plays, poems over the years, told a thousand stories to adults, to children, in turn inspiring thousands more. I'm Nancy Richards, and I asked her first why she writes. It's, it's in one of my poems, Why I Write. I write to bear witness to the life I know, the life I have lived, and life around me. Because as I grew older and my uh, awareness got a little bit broader, I, I was astounded in my late 20s, early 30s, to realize that white South Africa had no idea of what it meant to be me. Have, growing up, thinking white people knew everything. They were richer, they were smarter, they were more educated. I thought they knew. I'm not apologizing for white, for apartheid, but it got to me that they didn't know when I was teaching at Herschel. This is 1980-something. The teachers, that they're all bright, you know, Herschel. The day we were, I don't know what we were talking about, and I said, the houses in Google to have no electricity. Nobody believed me. I mean, people drive through Google to go to the airport. They didn't know there was no, what else didn't they know? So it's, it's a kind of saying, I knew, I didn't know apartheid would end during my lifetime, but I knew one day all eras come to an end, you know, finally. And I thought in 2,000 years, people might want to know, would want to know, apartheid, what did it mean? So I wrote the story of an ordinary human being during apartheid. That's it, bearing witness. And then subsequently on being exposed to people who write theses and other theses and, and papers on writings, I got to realize that I was a rare breed in 1990 since African, black African women started being published in South Africa, in 1990, there were five. So I must have been the sixth. And this professor, male professor, also said this was the trend in Africa. Women writers would write one or two books. They were not prolific. And I made up my mind I would be prolific. I would write and write and write. I, I have no training in writing, but I made up my mind I would write. And I wouldn't write only autobiography. I wouldn't write only, I would write anything. But the more I write, the more I realize there is so much to say to myself, to my peers, to the next generation. And there is a lot to question. 
about the life I have, the life I witnessed. And so I, I, you know, when I made that decision that I would continue, I wanted children because one of the reasons I started writing when I was approaching 40, when my first book came out, I was 47 years old. It's because I didn't know I could write. I didn't know anybody who looked like me who wrote. I wanted children growing up in this country and elsewhere, in the di- in all Africa and in the diaspora, to see people who look like their mothers right. It's called role modeling. It's a conscious act of saying, my child, my grandchild, my, my sister, my mother, you too can write. And do you think, well, I know that your writing has inspired other people to write. Have you seen evidence of that? Have you heard evidence of other people being inspired to write? because you wrote? When I go occasionally to my Facebook page, people say, thank you, you inspired me. I'm also writing now. I have had instances of people, uh, I give my email when I think I can, uh, who I nurture. I nurture, you know, emerging writers, very emerging, not people who have already published. They can do it without me if they have already. But Somebody worth mentioning is Tando, Tando Golozan, who is an accomplished writer. Tando claims me, as I claim Maya Angelou, claims me as his writing mother. He says he doubts he would ever have started writing if he had not, while a student at UWC, gone to the library, read my books, and was amazed to read about things he knew, things he could have... Then he realized, oh, if Mama Cindy Wemagona can do this, I can too, I can too. And he has. I just finished reading his A Man Who Is Not A Man. He writes. That's a book that points to a lot of what's amiss still in our society, the othering, the lack of sympathy, the, you know? Yeah, I would like to discuss that book with somebody, Tando or another, no, not with Tando. You know, in a, in a, in a you know, <sighs> tradition. There's a lot good in tradition, but tradition must move with the times. Tradition, you know, is not God-made. So as we evolve, let's, evolve tradition to. So in her latest book, When the Village Sleeps, Dr. Magonna looks at tradition, but also how it's often challenged by the ills of contemporary society. In particular, she was moved by a story in her local paper about a young girl who chose to maim her unborn child. So what was the bigger trigger for this book? What was it that she wanted to highlight? The loss of human potential because of the way those who were not favored by apartheid policies were dwarfed. The potential that they had in their bodies was lost to society. But almost 30 years after our so-called independence, I look at the children of today, the young people. When I say children, I don't mean it literally. I just mean, you know, the born freeze. And their parents who, who straddled both uh, worlds, who got a little bit of a party experience, but not much. And I look at the loss, the humongous loss 
of potential steel, the education of our children has zoomed downwards instead of being uplifted. The education of the black, black child in South Africa today is reputedly worse than that of the black, black child during apartheid. And that is saying something. You know, then one understands the apartheid era because the government spelled it out, what the goal was of depriving the Bantu child of a good education because a certain result was expected. That was the program. What is the program now? Is it a hidden agenda or is it an unintended outcome? Does it matter? We can see what is happening. Our children are not making it. And then I read this story in the echo. And children not making it is one thing, but children being formed, being programmed in their mother's bellies, not to make it in life, if this is not criminal. Tell us the story of that story that you read in the echo, the one that was in a catalyst for this book. Yes. The echo is our community magazine, so it's free. Comes Thursdays. Years ago, I read this story. Front page. There's a young lady, 16 years old, holding a baby, and she's being interviewed by a social worker. And her story is simply that she wanted this baby. She wanted to get pregnant from when she was 13. That's what she says. I wanted to be pregnant from when I was 13. My mind goes, what? 13? Horrified, I read on still because I cannot believe what I'm reading. Of course, she's 16 and has a six-month, eight-month-old baby, something like that. It wasn't yet a year old. So I thought, okay, so you succeeded at 15, little miss, and now you have a baby. Then I used to drink before I got pregnant. Oh, please, God. Of course, she must have stopped. No. It gets worse, Nancy. After I got pregnant... I started taking drugs. And she gives the reason. I wanted this baby to be deformed. Blend, blend deformity of your own child. And one of the reasons that she wanted this child to be deformed was so she could get the extra SASA grant. Oh, yes. For an ordinary child then, the child grant was 300 rand a month. And for what is called a dependency, you know, child grant or dependency grant, it was a, a thousand four hundred thereabouts. And I thought, oh, she had her mother. She was one of three kids her mother was raising on the child grant. So if you put three and three and three in one fell, she was going to get more than her mother, who will be getting nine hundred for the three of them, and she would be getting much more than the mother. That's the working of her mind. To say I was horrified is putting it, I was also angry. Angry at this child. How dare she? How could she? She should be in jail. Then I went after the mother. Of course, the mother is always blamed. (laughs) Why would I not blame the mother? Where was the mother? Like children tell their mothers when they are going to mess up. Mama, I'm planning to mess up. Eventually, after I blamed everybody, the school teachers and sanity returned to me. Because I went from this one case to say, but actually, why am I surprised this this young lady is still 
not jailed. Because I knew, even with this story making front page, first of all, who's going to read this? Someone in parliament, someone important who can go and jail her? Then I said, you know, we have lived in this country. We, we get used to almost all the horrors that come our way. For decades, decades before I even went away, we knew that fetal alcohol syndrome was rife in South Africa. Have you ever heard of anybody being jailed because they have three or four or five or six, you know, fast children? No. And I think, what is wrong with us as a nation? How do we let this happen? And there is no concerted effort for the sake of these children. Who deserves to be condemned to a life of feebleness? Your whole life, you will never be what the universe, what God or whatever higher power you believe in intended you to be because your mother was either irresponsible and drank or thought she was smart and took drugs to make sure you would be deformed. So this is what you were describing as a, the humongous waste of human potential. So the nation is the village that yes. you talk about when the village sleeps, the title of the book. Yes. And you've put this story, the, the young girl, mm. Bosisiwe, but you've told the story through the voices of Bosisiwe, her mother, her grandmother, her daughter. Just tell me a little bit about each one of those. Let's, let's start with Bosisiwe. Bosisiwe, for me, of course, represents this, this child. Because in the end, I had to come back to, we raised the children. Busisiwe wasn't born with this idea of maiming the fetus in her womb. Where did she get such an idea? What kind of society have we become that such ideas are prevalent? Because the social worker ended the article by saying, this is a growing trend in the townships. So this is a growing trend because of who we are. Our children get ideas from us. And what kind of society are we, South Africans, that when a young woman is growing up at 13, the idea of escaping poverty to her is exemplified by having a baby? Does her escape from poverty? Where are the other saner ideas, healthier ideas? What children elsewhere might be thinking, I'll be a teacher, I'll be a nurse, I'll be a bricklayer, I'll be this, I'll work hard. I'll... Where are these dreams? Well, it certainly wasn't the case that Busisiwe's mother was a role model because in a way she was a role model because her mother, Phyllis, was a drinker. Just, just tell us a little bit about Phyllis. She was a lost soul, eh? I had thought when I was planning, you know, when you think you're planning a book, the most challenging uh, character would be Busisiwe. I found Phyllis more challenging in the end because she is so wounded. She has a little bit of apartheid in her. You know, when the transition was, she was already out of school. And so she's one of, like, my younger, young, youngest siblings who, if only they'd been born 10 years later, they could have been going to the Olympics, especially my youngest brother. He was such a, a sports person. You know, I always felt he must be sad 
I don't know, we never talked about. But, you know, people on the cusp who lost out on getting the benefits of freedom and think their children should revel in this. And so more than is ordinary, all the things she didn't get, she hopes, she wants, she pushes Musi to get. But she has her own demons. She is the elder of the two sisters, the prettier of the two girls. Guess who loses a husband? She does. Lily is not abandoned. She applied for a house before Lily. Guess who gets a house before her? She never gets a house throughout the story. Lily. And guess how her husband betrayed her? He didn't just live with another woman, but with a woman who was her best friend, her bridesmaid, when she got married. And they were renting where they stayed. It was not their house. You know, this is the, the, the home throughout the book. When Musisi were thinks of home, that's where she knew happiness. The first five years of her life, when she had a father and who was doting on her, and they share a birthday, and so she was daddy's, you know, the two, we are like this, twin spirits. But when he leaves the family, they get kicked out of the house because they were renting from his uncle. And he says, you know, my nephew gone, leave. So Phyllis just feels that the whole world is against her. So one of the reasons it's not mentioned in this book, maybe in the sequel or the prequel, I don't know. One of the reasons is that she didn't get a second child. And her first child in tradition is not you haven't really given us a child because it's not a male child. So after the husband leaves, guess what she gets? Two boys. The boys she couldn't give. She couldn't give her husband. Now she gets, you know, there's this sense that the woman gives the children. We all know now science tells us that the, the, the gender comes from the, the maid. But, you know, this has not filtered through to our men. And where he goes, he never gets any sons anyway. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. So Phyllis is, of all the characters, a well except Mandlakas, but Mandlakas isn't really wounded because she's human, but she's also spirit. So of the flesh, flesh people, Phyllis is the more wounded person. And ironically, I mean, just going through them generationally, so we have Wutusiwe, we have her very damaged mum, Phyllis, but before her, but we have Phyllis's mum, Kulu, mm. who is from another generation. Yes. She is from the village. Mm. She's from the rural area. Mm. And she's like the voice of wisdom. Yes. Just give us a bit of a character sketch of, of Kulu. Kulu, I suppose, is more modern. Like you? No, no. <laughs> no. I wish. <laughs> like my mother. My mother was a traditional healer. And... You know, if we had had years, we would have gleaned a lot of wisdom from my mother. Remember, she's the one who who told us girls that education is the only husband who will never leave you. She, who never finished primary school, she has all these children who are educated, 
because she knew the value of education. My parents had no education, but they had Ubuntu in their hearts. And part of Ubuntu is looking after your children, raising your children, minding your business. And they raised theirs and they, they tried to help the extended family. There are children who are where they are today because they came through my parents' influence. So Kulu is modeled more actually after my mother. So Kulu has worked all her life in the city and in, in mm. the suburbs, and then she goes back to the Eastern Cape and she, she lives this sort of rural village life. Mm. And Phyllis is always asking her for money and, Mama, can you give me some money? So that's Kulu. We have Kulu in the Eastern Cape. We have Phyllis, damaged Phyllis, and we have 13-year-old Busiwe who decides she's going to get pregnant and decides she's going to do these awful things. And then we have Mandrakazi, mm. who is the special one. Yes. Just tell us a little bit about her, because when she's born, it's difficult. But give us a little bit of a character sketch of her. You know, Mandlakazi is, for me, the real story. Ubuntu and Abandu. Abandu believe in ancestors. All Abandu believe in ancestors. And vaguely, this is a truth even scientists are beginning to probe the boundaries we believe in Nancy between the flesh life and the spirit life, the boundaries we believe in in terms of time, the present, the past, the future, the here and the now and the where and the... These don't exist really. We are all together, all the time. Abantu will say, a human being is never alone. You are never alone because you are always and everywhere surrounded by your people, your ancestors. You're never alone. Whether in happiness or in grief, your ancestors are there. Lean on them. Believe in them. Honor them. Respect them. And because you are never alone, you never do shame in Tondi. You never do what you know you would not do where other eyes looking at you. Because guess what? Other eyes are. You are never alone. Mpai, as he came, one of our more noticed and remembered writers, poets, explains the basis of life, the basis of Ubuntu, of the living, how life is lived, the basis is Ushoni, respect. You respect self. You respect the other. You respect the environment. You obey the law. And in the village, the law came from the king or the chief who got the law directly from God. He was God's representative on earth. The chief doesn't see you all the time, but as you tread the soil on which you walk in the village, the saying was, whoever the, the, the chief was, tread so-and-so, naming the chief, tread 
thrown throws soil with care, with respect. In other words, conduct yourself in a manner that says you are aware that you are linked to God through your chief, to the ancestors. In other words, there is interconnectedness in life. What I think will influence others, whether I want to or not, as I have been influenced by others, consciously and unconsciously. And Mandlakazi is very linked. Mandlakazi is very linked to the ancestors, the old, yes. as you call them. And we, we hear their voices. We yes. hear them through her and we yes. hear their voices separately. She is an ancestor who has decided when they had their own caucus, their own meeting, because they could see if things such as what Musisiwe was doing, if children are maiming, if children are desecrating nature, humaneness at that level for a child to maim the first of all the child shouldn't be having a child something the ancestors already say is broken but for that brokenness to be further broken what do you call that let us intervene in more forceful ways than we usually do usually we whisper in the ear somebody suddenly has a moment of, oh, maybe I should, or they dream it, or, you know, they have some insight, you know, something. That's the ancestor, the thought from somewhere else, the thought that is everywhere, all the time. Let's manifest in, fa- in flesh. And so Mandlakazi comes to be born through Busisi. And despite her deformities, despite her deformities, which enabled Bosisiwe to get the yeah. what you call the deaf grant, yes. the disabled yes. grant, Mandelkazi becomes the golden child. As you say, she is the story. She is the one who leads the way. Tell us what you intended for her. Is she, is she like a, a, a trailblazer, somebody who is leading the way for other young people? Well, yes. That came later. At the beginning... Mandlakazi was going to be the growing trend. She was going to live for 50 years, at which point this sleeping village would have to wake up because the majority of a certain age would be like Mandlakazi, but not a spirit, would be the maimed ones. What will happen if we allow this to go on so much so that every year, out of the children born, the majority are fast children. What will happen when in parliament, the majority of parliamentarians are fast people? Remember when we had Bandu education, where what the government spent, the apartheid government spent on education per annum per child, 480 rand, the rand was stronger than the dollar then, but you know, for a white child, 280 for a colored and, a, and an Indian child, 28 for a black child. Majority in parliament now, 28 rand a year education. I understand the incompetence. You're getting your 28 rand a year education. That's what you sold. You are reaping the fruit. What I don't understand is the crookedness. That is not planted by anybody but yourself. 
So when you say fast children, we're talking fetal alcohol syndrome yes. children, which and, and had things panned out in a, a particular way, and this growing trend would have resulted in all yes. these yes. fast and yes. or maimed yes. children. This was the plan. The book was going to be dystopic, yes. and the book was going to go on until a 50-year period. It was spanning 50 years. So Mandlagas would then be, you know, she was born at a different time. She would be born about you know, 2020 in the first draft. And so in 50 years' time, she would be a, a grey head, but there would be the upcoming ones, but they would all be maimed and therefore not fully functional, but they would be in the majority mm -hmm. and they would be in power. So something happened, something flew into your mind like a good spirit and rescued the whole of society from having this maimed new generation. And she was saved. She's a very different child from, she grows into a very different child to, to how you originally planned her. So what no, happened? No, no, she was going to always be half flesh, half spirit. But her being here is the upliftment of children like herself. Yes, they are maimed, but they can work together. They can be a force. You see, that was what, going. you know, this happens, but because of COVID, the book had to end a little earlier, a lot earlier. I had to change the, the years so that Mandlagas would be going to high school in 2019, that kind of thing, you know. You know. So that changed, and... Um, so now, has is just where it would have been beginning, where the group is beginning to form and show that despite being differently abled, they can be a force. They can have a life. They can have pride in themselves. And they can respect themselves and even respect the people who do not respect them. Maybe teach them a thing or two. And there are so many lessons to be learned from Mandla Kazi and her group. I don't want to give too much away towards the end of the book, but this is where Mandla Kazi really comes into her own, much as a result of what the lessons that she learned from Kulu. Yes. And also from Busisiwe, who mm. did in turn yes. become a role model. But yes. let's not give too much away. One of the things that struck me about the book is that it's full of parallels or, or you know, binaries, I suppose you might say, you know, suburban life, or at least township life, Kwanele, versus the rural village, um, Sidwadweni. I named um, that village because it's where my parents were married. Okay. It's, a, it's a neighboring village to where I was born, where their home was. But as it turns out, it's also the village of Miss South Africa or Miss World. I, I wrote the book before she got to be Miss World. I just want to make that point. Well, I think the ancestors were with you on that one. They <laughs> gave you a clue. <laughs> so we've got we've got the you know the parallels between the, between the, the Guanelle and Sidwadweni, and, yes. and also the generations, the difference between one generation mm. and another, the difference between educated, non-educated, poor, non-poor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's almost like you're and quite, the black elderly woman and a white elderly woman. Mrs. Bird. Mrs. Bird. Mandaka. <laughs> tell, tell us about Mrs. Bird. I wanted Mrs. Bird there because Kulu worked for somebody and I didn't want Kulu to just have worked. I wanted her to have had a meaningful job and I wanted her to have had a good employer. 
because I've had, I have friends, I've witnessed good employers. And Mrs. Bird is fashioned after somebody I know. She's late now, but after somebody I know. Years before the end of apartheid, she bought a flat for her maid in Plumstead. And I'm honoring her. She couldn't put it in the, in the maid's name because of the law. Didn't allow it then. Black people couldn't own immovable property in the urban areas. Okay. But in her will, her children knew everybody had agreed. When she dies, this woman is never to be displaced from this flat. Well, may there be many more Mrs. Birds and may all the Mrs. Birds... I mean, Birds... for me, that was like... <gasps> This is in the late 80s or early, before 1994. You know, it seems to me that there are a lot of um, personal experiences in, yes. in, your, in your life. You have observed many things. You've, you've gone from rural villages yourself to the townships to, to New York to Cape Town. You've, you've done the whole gamut, the whole spectrum, and you've met many, many people. And you've experienced things yourself, but you've also observed. You've observed how it is for young people now. You've observed how where the damage starts and how the rot grows. Do you make notes of these things? Do you, or do they just sort of find their? Do they plant themselves in your mind and grow into characters for books? They invade me. <laughs> they invade me, and I, I am always pleasantly surprised by my life. But even as I enjoy my life, make no mistake about it, I do, I am painfully aware of my street and what is happening there in Guguleto. In even in my street, even this, I'm sure it will be Saturday, people get buried on Saturday. There's a young woman who was killed by a boyfriend. I mean, these are children whose parents I either taught in school or I knew. The damage, the harm, the hurt, the downward spiral is there, and I witness it. I hear of it, I read of it. You know, last month or last, no, no, not last month, last year or early this year, in the street, I walked. In a house, maybe I've even stood at the doorway. I knew the mother there, who was my mother's age. I knew her children, who were my age. I knew some of their children when they were little something to do with guns. Seven people died, were shot. It was in the newspaper. So I am, I straddle. I don't want even to say two worlds. I am of this world. And you are not just of the adult world, you're also of the young world, because one of the things that's impressive about your book and the way that you've written it is the language of the ancestors, but the language of contemporary people and the language of young people. I mean, Bussy, when she's a, when she's young and naughty and she's got her friend Tandy and they get up to all sorts of things, and I go, ooh, you know this. You, you have, do you listen a lot to young people? I to listen get this? to the young shows. I, I read, I read young adults. And I have nieces who are young and they keep me straight. <laughs> they keep you informed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, when they WhatsApp me or call me, I hear the language and I make notes, mental notes, yes. And sometimes I out and ask. We used to say, what do you say? And I get it. Yes, straddling is a good word. But as you say, it's more than two worlds. It's many, many worlds. Yes, I remember when... I woke, I mean, when I was a teenager and the language was there, 
and my parents were, were out, were the out group. And I have been the out group to so many generations, my children's generation, my grandchildren's generation now. And I am cognizant of the fact that unless I open my heart and my mind and my spirit to be influenced or at least to listen and learn. Yes, the older generation always have lessons to give, but it also we have to be mindful we don't impose our ideas on because they have to make their own world, their own life. But we also learn from the younger people. It's life because life is never at a standstill. They may know things I had no idea of. And that, that doesn't mean I'm stupid. It means I'm growing. <laughs> and may you continue to grow. But your book is going to grow a lot of people because I think whether it was wittingly or unwittingly, and certainly we were consciously giving people your vision for how things could be better. Are you hopeful that young people as well as older people will read it? I mean, I'm not sure what you had in mind in terms of the book's legacy. The ancestors helping, God willing. This is a book for all generations. Because as I said in the beginning, the boundaries we believe in do not exist. What affects one generation affects all generations. If my generation, the older generation does the right thing, all generations benefit. If the young generation does the right thing, all generations benefit. Nobody does the right thing and it hurts. The right thing never hurts anybody. Let me put it that way. Good is good for all. And what village South Africa need to do is wake up to its responsibility that every child born into the village has the right and deserves the chance, the opportunity to become a person who grows into the fullness of their potential. So they need the support, the nurturing, the mindfulness of the entire village. Giving grants is a symptom that the village remembers that responsibility. Is it enough? No. Am I saying it should stop? No. I am saying it should become more mindful. Kulu explains it better. The same money used more caringly instead of 18 long years shrink the period this person is stewing in poverty. Get them the assistance they need to become fully functioning. I'm hoping, if it hasn't already happened, that one day you will have an opportunity to talk in Parliament and perhaps the appropriate departments will hear what you have to say. This is my hope and my dream. It doesn't have to be me talking in Parliament. The book and supporters, an NGO, an NPO, a group of people who believe in what I am saying, Nancy, take the book. I can be there if invited. I can meet ministers. I am not imposing my ideas. I am saying this could be a better way. And it's not original. It doesn't come from me. Believe me, I'm not that brilliant. It is from the model we already have in tradition, Ilima, 
where as the village plants and plows and hoes and does whatever in the field, people who have, people who have the ability that would be cattle in the village, oh, that widow or that poor person who doesn't have, let's clap together when we are done. Let's go and do that one. But when they do that, they may do it a year or two. But the idea is to give you the help you need to help yourself. They are not going to come here hoeing for you, watering your field. You do that yourself. Give the people the tools that is necessary so that they can start hoeing themselves and watering themselves. You know, they are, they are filled. The field of a human being is their body, where all they are, all they'll ever be, is encased. The mind, the spirit, the body is one. The grand so far looks after the body, feeds the body. We need the mind and the spirit also looked after. Let's help people who are poor to get out of poverty. Let's not maintain poverty because maintenance will result in growth. You maintain a poor person, they just have children who grow poor. And so what is multiplying in South Africa right now is poverty. Let's help people get out. It's possible. I've read one or two stories of people who escaped because their carers were mindful and used the same grant, the same grant as Kulu uses it here, to help the child go through and get a good education. Not for feeding only. It's not for feeding only. It's not enough as it is. Let's make a bigger grant, but shorter periods, but guided guided because a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, even a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old who has a child is ill-prepared to raise that child successfully. Let's help the children because the mothers can't. Mm -hmm. Let's help the children get better chance of becoming fully grown so that they can thrill. People need to thrill in their lives and live the lives that we all want, the good life. You sound like Mandelkazi. <laughs> Just in closing, you talk about growth and you talk about development and hoeing and plowing in the fields. And just lastly, briefly, growing food is hugely important, both for Kulu and Mandelkazi, but it's, it's a thread throughout the book. Do you think more people should do it? Do you grow your own vegetables? I don't. My mother did. Pumpkin, beans, millies, you name it. And I think... It's an example to be followed. You don't have to buy every potatoes, garbages. You don't have to go to shops. If you have a little bit of ground, grow your own vegetable. Honestly, grow your own vegetable. We need to learn to be self-sufficient, to say nothing of people in the villages with all those fields. You know, it should be encouraged, not punished, but there should be a way that farming is made more profitable for people. I'm not saying there should be competition, but there should be ways in which people feel that they are doing something worthwhile. Might that be the subject of your next book? Could be. Could be. Cindy Way, thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for writing this book. Nancy, thank you for caring and for being present in the moment, because you know the book is there. You follow up. Thank you. hey, hey.
Hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo.